Acts chapter 16, verses 1 through 15. Now when they had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, where there was a synagogue of the Jews. And Paul went in, as was his custom, and on three Sabbath days he reasoned with them from the Scriptures, explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead, and saying, This Jesus, whom I proclaim to you, is the Christ. And some of them were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, as did a great many of the devout Greeks, and not a few of the leading women. But the Jews were jealous, and taking some wicked men of the rabble, they formed a mob, set the city in an uproar, and attacked the house of Jason, seeking to bring them out to the crowd. And when they could not find them, they dragged Jason and some of the other brothers before the city authorities, shouting, These men who have turned the world upside down have come here also, and Jason has received them. And they are all acting against the decrees of Caesar, saying, There is another king, Jesus. And the people and the city authorities were disturbed when they heard these things. And when they had taken money as security from Jason and the rest, they let them go. The brothers immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea. And when they arrived, they went into the Jewish synagogue. Now these Jews were more noble than those in Thessalonica. They received the word with all eagerness, examining the scriptures daily to see if these things were so. Many of them therefore believed, with not a few Greek women of high standing as well as men. But when the Jews from Thessalonica heard that the word of God was proclaimed by Paul at Berea, they came there too, agitating and stirring up the crowds. Then the brothers immediately sent Paul off on his way to the sea, but Silas and Timothy remained there. Those who conducted Paul brought him as far as Athens, and after receiving a command from Silas and Timothy to come to him as soon as possible, they departed. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. And children, you may be dismissed. If you would, bow your heads with me as we pray. Our Heavenly Father, we come to you this day. And Lord, I pray that we would come as the Bereans eagerly to receive your word. And Lord, not only that, I pray that you would guide us by the Holy Spirit into all truth, that you would guide us to examine the scriptures, to study them, to uh, understand them, Lord, so that in them we might find the truth concerning Christ Jesus and our salvation in him. Lord, I thank you for this day, and I thank you for the privilege that it is to be here today together and also to sit under the word of God. In Jesus' name. Amen. Here in the book of Acts chapter 17, we have for us once more, I think one thing that I would call, and we've sort of looked at the book of Acts in this way before, and I think it's helpful often for us too, we have something of a, of a master class in methodology by Paul and by Silas. We see in this story and in their example 
the methods that they employ as they are going about on their missionary journey, proclaiming the gospel, proclaiming the good news, preaching to the lost, preaching Christ. And I, I say that this is a master class in, in methodology that we have here before us today, not because I am in any way a master in any of these things. And even though I would say Paul probably is something of a master, as we see in, in these texts, I would say even more than that, that it's because the Holy Spirit is a master in these things. And the Holy Spirit, as he so has chosen, uses men like Paul and these means in order to reach his intended end. As we've said before, this book, the book of Acts, oftentimes called the Acts of the Apostles, and in many of our Bibles, uh, we would say, and I think rightly so, should be called and could be called the Acts of the Holy Spirit. For as we see all throughout the book, indeed, as the Holy Spirit is using men like Peter, like Philip, like Paul and Silas, what we really are seeing is the Holy Spirit at work using his chosen instruments and his chosen ways. And so we come today to see not just uh, what it is that, that Paul is doing because Paul is doing it, but because we see as Paul is going about his mission along with Silas and his companions, we see the Holy Spirit working in him, working through him, and using him and these methods to preach the gospel and to save the lost. And so we come now to look at these examples in the book of Acts and to learn how the Lord operates in this world and therefore how we ought to operate in the world. The methods of Paul and his companions on their on their missionary journey, they were very effective. And we know this, first of all, that their methods were effective because we live in a day and age where we're reaping the benefits of their efforts. Indeed, we would not be here today were it not for the missionary efforts of Paul and Silas and Timothy and the like. We know that we have benefited greatly and deeply from their work, that the Lord used it not just to expand the gospel locally in their regions, but to blast it forth to the ends of the earth. And so we stand here today as believers gathered together, worshiping the Lord, studying the scriptures as a product of what the Lord has done through these men and through their methods. But not only do, do we see the effectiveness because of that, but even in the scripture that we have before us itself, we can tell by two things the effectiveness of their ministry, of their witness, of their preaching. We see that it's effective, first of all, because of what this mob says about them as, as they are preaching the gospel and it enrages the people there in Thessalonica, the, the Jews specifically, who are so threatened and, and become so jealous of, of what they see the Lord doing through Paul and his ministry, that they gather together these men, this mob to, to go and accuse Paul and, and to take him captive. And if they had captured, captured him, who knows what they might have done. But we see something enlightening for us in verse 6 when they come before the authorities. And what is their claim? What do they start with? They say, these men who have turned the world upside down have come here also. This is what we see these people are accusing Paul and Silas of having done. They've turned the world upside down. They mean this as, a, as a, a, an accusation, don't they? 
Look at the stir these men are causing. They've turned the world upside down in all these cities that they've come to. We heard of, of what they have done in Philippi and all the trouble they caused and what they, they did there. These men are turning the world upside down and they say it with disdain. They say it with an accusatory finger. But we read that and we say, what a great testimonial. That should go on a commercial or on a website. These men turn the world upside down by the preaching of the gospel. We see the effectiveness of their methods and therefore we ought to pay close attention because the things these men were doing turned the world upside down. And that's something that we want to be true of us, isn't it? We want that to be true of us as individuals. We want that to be true of us as a family. We want that to be true of us as a church, as God's people, as believers. And so as we come to Acts, my hope is that we can see a method that works. Not because it is a method that men have created, but because it's a method that the Holy Spirit is using, it is God-ordained, and we see played out all throughout the Scriptures. And so we're going to see four points about this method, four, uh, four aspects of the method that is employed here by Paul and Silas, by the Holy Spirit, and how the Lord uses it. Point number one, this method that works, a method that works is a method that is intentional. We see here, in both of our stories here, as Paul comes to Thessalonica, and then after he's, he's run out there, as he comes to Berea, what is it that Paul does, as he does in every city that he goes into? He goes first, straight to the synagogue, doesn't he? It's what Paul does every time. We see it in verse two, and Paul went in, as was his custom. He found the synagogue, and he goes to the synagogue, and begins his ministry, begins his preaching. There, we see it again. When he goes into Berea in verse 10, when he arrived, they went into the Jewish synagogue. Paul understands, and he uses this, this method because he knows that it works. Some might say that Paul is predictable. I say that Paul is intentional, that he's committed to a method that works. It's not by coincidence that he goes into the synagogues. It's by design. He has thought through his strategy. And he realizes the usefulness of this tactic. For Paul, being a Jew, has access to the synagogue. Not only access, but he has a standing. He's a great, uh, a great uh, Jewish theologian. He studied under the greats. He knows the Old Testament scriptures, and he knows them inside and out. Pharisee of Pharisees is what he calls himself. And so he knows he can enter into the synagogue, the place where the word of God is most accessible where the word of God is already being read. And he goes there knowing that that is the place that the Lord, just in his design, has called him to go and works. We see Paul entering into the synagogue because it is his strategy. It's his tactic, and it's a useful one at that. Paul knows that he has the ability, he has the access to go in and leverage his, his uh, position as a Jew and his knowledge of the scriptures in order to preach and proclaim to those who have the scriptures and hopes that, as the Lord often does, people there would be saved. He's intentional about his strategy. He's intentional about his tactic. 
I think about this when it comes to things like, like street preaching. Now, street preaching can be a very effective and great form of evangelism. And when I say this, don't hear me say that street preaching is bad, because I'm not. I've seen it done, and I've seen it done very effectively. I've also seen it done very poorly. But I think one thing that, that causes me pause, I would say, is that I think it can be the case for certain people, certain personalities, that there is almost something easier about going onto a street and proclaiming, preaching to people who you do not know and to people who you will likely never interact with again. There is almost, in that scenario, there can be almost a sense of, of anonymity that you can proclaim, you can preach, and yeah, they might not like what you're saying, but it's okay because you'll probably never see them again. And that can be a means for boldness. And, and if someone is, is motivated by that, by all means, go and preach the gospel in the streets. But I think what is a potential fear, and, and to be honest with you, I say this out of personal experience, that as someone who, who has a certain amount of boldness, a certain lack of fear when it comes to crowds and, and public situations, I can say I know that there is something easier about standing up in front of a group whom, whom you might never see again, never have to, have to interact with anymore beyond this conversation, and you can kind of say whatever you want. But then, when it comes to people whom you're close to, people that you work with, people in your friend groups, people who are lost, that you know personally, that you interact with on a regular basis, it can oftentimes become way harder to interact with those people, even those people that you know well because of how well you know them. Does that make sense? It can almost be easier to, to take on the anonymity of, of proclaiming to a group of unknown faces than to share the gospel with those closest to you. And, and I would contend that when we do this, one of the things that we're lacking is a little bit of intentionality. That, that Paul here, I would, I would propose, is leveraging his position in the synagogue, his relationships that he has, he's leveraging everything that he can for the sake of reaching people for the lost. And the question I would ask of myself and of all of us in here is, are we like Paul, leveraging every relationship, every opportunity, every sort of thing that we have at our disposal in order to reach the lost? That's a difficult question for us to come to, but it's one that it's important for us to ask. Not so that we might remain defeated, but so that we might, like Paul, recognize that we have opportunities around us. We have things that we can leverage, whether it be our abilities, our giftings, or our relationships for the sake of seeing the lost come to know Christ, for the sake of the gospel. And so like Paul, my hope is that we might leverage all these things, our relationships, our abilities, everything that we have for the sake of the gospel, even when it makes us uncomfortable. Even when it means I might share the gospel with this person and it might, it might offend them. And I might have to work with them still. I still have to maintain a relationship with them. And that can be very uncomfortable. And yet, brothers and sisters, don't we know it to be true? That we're far more likely to gain ground. We're far more likely to have further conversations and to have an impact with someone who we already know and have a good relationship with than with someone on the street randomly. 
My claim is not that the Lord doesn't save people that way. Again, don't hear me saying that. People have been saved through preaching on the street, through proclaiming the gospel through a loudspeaker, and praise God for each one of those salvations. But how many of us in here were saved not through that, but through people close to us who were faithful and telling us the truth of the gospel? We ought to, as Paul does, leverage everything that we have, every opportunity for the sake of the gospel. A method that works is intentional. Point number two, a method that works is one that is also rational. Look what Paul tells, look what Luke tells us about Paul in verse two. He says, on three Sabbath days, he reasoned with them from the scriptures. That Paul, as he was preaching the gospel, the aspect of his preaching that's highlighted for us in here in Acts chapter 17 is not his poetic prowess. We know Paul knew poetry, right? We're going to see him cite it later, right? We're going to see him cite uh, even pagan literature later on in this chapter. But what do we see here? We don't see his, his poetic prowess on display. We don't see his ability to, uh, to evoke emotion from the crowd on display. He was an effective preacher, but his preaching was moving because it moved both the emotion and the mind. His preaching was not one that, that bypassed the mind and tried to go straight to the heart, straight to emotions. The same way that God does not convert one's mind apart from his heart, he also never converts one's heart apart from the mind. In other words, no one is going to become a Christian, be converted just by mentally, intellectually assenting to the, to the things concerning God, to, to theology, to doctrine. A person can be fully equipped with a deep knowledge of the scriptures, with a deep knowledge of theology, with a whole systematic theology textbook logged away in their brain, and yet still, if their heart has not been changed by the gospel then they are still unsaved. Being intellectually savvy with regards to the things of God does not make you a believer. But in the same way, a person who is, who is uh, brought to an emotional frenzy, a person who, who is uh, uh, just totally moved by some sort of speech or, or rhetoric, but whose mind doesn't understand Christ, doesn't know who he is, then that person is not any more saved than the person who has all the information in the world, but whose heart has never been changed. Nowhere in the scripture do we have an example of anyone who was saved any other way than both heart and mind. All-encompassing conversion. That's what the Bible preaches. That's what Paul and Silas are preaching. Their method is one that is not just designed to, to frenzy up emotions, to, to stir people's emotions and cause them to react and, and give some, uh, uh, to come forward, to walk an aisle, to give a profession. Their intention is to reason with them, to use the gospel to affect both their heart but also their mind. This, I believe, is one of the dangers with with both the charismatic movement as we see it today, but also uh, even what is called modern revivalism in churches today. What we see here in the book of Acts happening in Thessalonica and Berea and Philippi, it's revival. 
But what we see happening here is something very different than what oftentimes is called a revival in churches today. Where the intentions are, let's, let's evict people's, evoke people's emotions. Let's get people up to that altar. Let's get them to do this thing. And in that, we have revival. But if revival doesn't involve rationality of the mind, understanding of the mind as well as the heart, as well as the emotions, then there is no revival happening. Many people have had emotional experiences in churches, in revivals, in camps. Many of us have maybe experienced those. But in no way do those emotions, do those experiences, if they are separated from a knowledge and understanding of the truth, in no way do they do us any good at all before the Lord. For our faith is rooted in in the truth. Our faith, despite what the opponents of Christ might say, is not a faith that is opposed to reason, but one that is indeed a reasonable faith. And so Paul reasons with them from the scriptures. This doesn't mean that Christians understand everything, that we have it all figured out. After Paul and Silas were done preaching here in, in Thessalonica and in, and in Berea, they didn't leave these people with PhDs, having a full understanding of all the ins and outs of, of the Trinity, of the hypostatic union of all these things. Certainly not. They were babes in Christ. They were new believers. Guess what? They lacked a lot of understanding. But one thing they didn't lack was the knowledge about Christ, that he is the Messiah, that he died, that he rose again from the grave in order to save his people just as the Lord had promised in the Old Testament. This does not mean that Christians understand everything, nor does it mean that Christians never struggle with doubt, for we know the devil is crafty and is happy to, uh, to plant doubts and seeds in our minds and in our hearts. Rather, It means that the Christian can and should engage their mind in the pursuit and worship of the Lord, not shut it off and not bypass it. We are called to engage with the scriptures, engage with the gospel, both with our heart and with our mind. There's a a, a saying that's kind of a a bumper sticker saying. It had uh, a lot of traction a while back, I suppose. I've heard some people say it. Uh, The saying goes like this. The Bible says it. I believe it, that settles it. And now, to be charitable to that saying and whoever it is that coined it and whoever it is that bumper stickered it, uh, I would say I think at the heart of what that saying is getting at, there's truth, right? Because the Bible is authoritative. It is the word of God. If the Bible says it, then we should believe it and that should settle it, right? Certainly. The Bible is our ultimate and final authority. I think that, being gracious, is what the Uh, the intention of the phrase is. But I think there is a a risk of this phrase becoming for us a sort of excuse or, or a crutch, if you will, for not engaging our mind, for not seeking, studying, and and trying to understand the person of God, the, the work of Christ, the gospel itself, the scriptures. For we could easily fall into this trap where we say, "Ah, the Bible says it, I believe it, that settles it. No need for further discussion, no need for further study. I believe it, we're good, you know? And just stop there. Because I'll tell you, church family, that kind of attitude is not a very, uh, very far trip away from 
My pastor says it. I believe it. That settles it. It's not that far of a leap when we begin to become lackadaisy about engaging our mind with the gospel and with the scriptures. That's why I want each and every one of you, if you don't have a Bible, and we say this every week, take one home with you. Because as much as it is my hope, my attempt, my desire to preach the truth revealed in the scriptures to you each week, your pastors, myself, Aaron, Robert, all of those who preach, guess what? We mess up sometimes. We make mistakes sometimes. We can get things wrong. Don't just take our word for it. Turn to the scriptures. Engage with your mind and seek to understand what the word of God says. Think about the story of Abraham. When Abraham was about to to offer Isaac to the Lord as the Lord had commanded him to do. We might think that this is an example that proves the usefulness of the phrase, the Bible says it, I believe it, that settles it. But I think that would be a gross oversimplification of what's happening in the story of Abraham and Isaac. Abraham did receive the command from God and he understood it to be from God and therefore to be authoritative and binding. And he had every intention of carrying it out. Had the Lord not intervened, that knife would have been plunged into the heart of Isaac. Abraham had every intention of obeying the Lord. But he did not, in any sense, shut off his brain, his reasoning, and turn into a robot, blindly obeying his programming that was input. Abraham not only didn't turn his brain off, he engaged his mind. Abraham's mind was fully engaged, and his knowledge of God, which he tapped into and surveyed, led him to conclude that he could trust the Lord even in this And as we see in Hebrews chapter 11, it was his knowledge of God that helped to motivate him to obey and upon which he leaned as he obeyed. What does the author of Hebrews say for us concerning this exact story in Hebrews 11? In Hebrews 11, 17 through 19, we read, By faith Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac. And he who had received the promise was in the act of offering up his only son, of whom it was said, through Isaac shall your offspring be named. Just to make it all the more clear, Abraham was in the process of offering up Isaac, the one who the promise was going to be fulfilled through. And the Lord had told him that. And here he was about to kill him. Why? Verse 19 tells us. He considered that God was able even to raise him from the dead from which, figuratively speaking, he did receive him back. Contrary to turning his mind off and and not engaging, the Bible tells us that Abraham's mind was fully engaged, and it was his knowledge of God, his understanding of God, that led him to trust God and know that this God, who created all things, who brings the dead to life, was able even to raise his son from the dead. It was because both his heart and and his mind were engaged that Abraham obeyed the Lord. The method of gospel proclamation that Paul used here was not one that bypasses the mind, but one that engages the mind. His method was a rational method. Point number three, his method was a method 
that is expository. Paul and his team were very successful, not just because their message was a rational message, not just because of their intentionality, but also because their message was biblical. As Paul was going into these synagogues, he wasn't taking his own personal pamphlets that he had printed ahead of time, passing them out, saying, here, let me show you my theories about Jesus. My own personal pamphlets, hand them out to you, read these with me, and and you'll understand everything. That's not what Paul does. No, Paul opens up the scripture to them and preaches to them the word of God. And he shows them this truth from every single word of scripture. This is what Paul does. Not just proclaiming his own opinions, but taking them to the Bible. And we see slightly different reactions to the exposition of the scriptures in in Thessalonica versus in Berea. Yet we see the work being accomplished in both places. In Thessalonica, we see that there are a few Jews who accept that Paul was proclaiming, accepting what Paul was proclaiming and, and joining with him and with Silas. But what we actually see is that the majority of the converts there in Thessalonica were not Jews by birth, but Greeks, God-fearing Greeks, both men and women. But then we see in Berea that the Jews, who, as Luke tells us, were more noble than the Jews in Thessalonica, we read that they respond differently as the word of God is proclaimed. It says they received the word from Paul with all eagerness, examining the scriptures daily to see if these things were so. I feel that's a, that it's obligatory, that if you read this verse, you have to take a moment and say, what is it that the Bereans did? They received the word as it was proclaimed to them eagerly, as it was preached, but did they just say, the preacher said it? I believe it. That settles it. Absolutely not. Even as the Apostle Paul himself is preaching, these people, these Jews, they don't just take his word for it. What do they do? They test it by the scriptures. They take what Paul is saying as he's preaching them in the Bible, and then they open up their Bibles, and they say, let's check this. Let's make sure what this guy is saying is true, that it accords with the scriptures, that it accords with the word of God. Let's check everything by God's word. Church family, again, this is what I call you to do. As I preach the word of God on Sunday mornings, don't simply take my word for it. Read God's word for yourself. Test what I say by the scriptures. Test what you hear around you by the scriptures. No matter who it is that's preaching it, test it by God's word. Because we go on to see in verse 12, Many of them, therefore, believed. The Bible says they received the word with all eagerness, examining the scriptures daily to see if these things were so. Many of them, therefore, believed. Because they examined the scriptures to see if these things were so, it drove them to belief. They found that these things are true, that they're not made up by Paul, they're not fanciful sayings. They are true, and they're true because they accord with God's word. And this is true of all who come to God's word and examine it and see what it has to say concerning Christ. Not just the, old, the New Testament, but also the old. They were convinced when they examined the scriptures. They were convinced by the word of God that 
which is sharper than any two-edged sword and better than any word that I or, or any other preacher could muster on his own. This method, this one that works, is an expository method. Then finally, a method that works is Christ-exalting. Paul took his listeners to the scriptures. He took them to the scriptures that they had, which was the Old Testament. And Paul showed them Christ in the Old Testament. Paul's preaching was right in line, exactly like that of Christ on the road to Emmaus. What is it that Christ did when he was, when he was teaching the disciples on the road to Emmaus? The Bible says that he opened up the scriptures, that is the Old Testament, and from the beginning to the end, he taught them all these things concerning Christ. We see that both from Jesus and from Paul's preaching, they understand that the whole of Scripture, both Old Testament and New, is pointing us to Christ. Every prophecy that's given of the Messiah in the Old Testament is fulfilled in Christ. Every shadow of worship from the temple to the sacrifices, all of it points us to Christ, the fulfillment of those things. So that we as a New Testament church can preach, whether from the Old Testament or the New, we preach Christ. For all of it points us to Him. I heard a good example of this just recently. Just this last week, I was listening to a podcast about uh, typology in the Psalms by Dr. Jim Hamilton. He's a professor at Southern Seminary. And he made the point, and he related it to, um, to musicals like that, like Les Mis, or like Hamilton. One thing you note about these musicals, these very uh, well-done, well-written musicals, one thing that you'll notice if you're careful and if you listen, is that throughout these musicals, you will oftentimes hear the same melody showing back up in the musical. I believe it's called a refrain. That you might, might hear it early on in the, in the musical, in the movie, in the play, whatever it is, and then you hear it again later. The same melody. And the purpose of that is to hearken your mind, cause you to think back to when you heard it previously. It's to relate what you are seeing and hearing now back to what you've already seen and what you've already heard. And one of the beautiful things that Dr. Hamilton points out about the Psalms, and I think we see this throughout the scriptures, is something similar. That throughout the scriptures, and especially in the Psalms, We see refrains concerning the one who was promised, but not just concerning the Messiah who was promised, not just concerning David and that the the promised Messiah would come through him, but also pointing us through to Jesus Christ and the fulfillment of him, which is why we see the Psalms over and over and over again quoted in the New Testament concerning Christ Jesus. That all of them are are, are intended to cause our brains, our minds to say, wait a second. This Jesus, this story about him, sounds a lot like what we heard back in Psalms, which was reminiscent of what we saw back in the Exodus. You begin to see when you read the scriptures in this way and understand them in this way, the coherence of the entirety of the scriptures, the whole of scriptures, that all of it is breathed out by God and is given to us for our instruction, for our reproof, for our training in righteousness. Once again, though, when you get right down to it, it's this. The fact that their method is Christ exalting. This is the reason their message was so despised and why they were despised for preaching it. Of all that they had done before this, 
none of it probably would have brought the same vitriol, the same bitterness, the same anger if it hadn't been for this point right here. The fact that they proclaimed Christ. It's the name of Christ that the enemies of Christ so hate and so despise and will do whatever they can to suppress it and put it down. They were preaching concerning Christ as the the rabble, the mob says that there is another king besides Caesar, which is an interesting claim because once again, there's a hint of truth in that, right? They are proclaiming that Christ is the king but not as these liars, as these deceivers would have the officials think, not proclaiming that Christ is now coming to take over Caesar's reign here on earth, not that he is a a threat to the monarchy, but that his kingship, his lordship is far greater, far higher, far above even that of Caesar. That whether Caesar knows it or not, his rule is under the authority and the dominion of a greater king, King Jesus. This is the message that was so despised by the Jews who were jealous, seeing people converted from Judaism, leaving the synagogue worship and following after Christ as they followed Paul and Silas, but also the enemies who saw Christ as a threat to their lordship, to their rule, to their authority. All around, when Christ is preached, the message concerning Christ, it is a message that turns the world upside down that turns it on its head. Both because it takes the most radical of sinner and turns them into a child of God and because it so so offends and so oppresses those who love themselves instead of God. But this is the message of salvation. And there is no other other message that we can proclaim that has any effect. 1 Timothy 2, 5-6 says, There is one God and there is one mediator between God and man, the man Jesus Christ, who gave himself as a ransom for all. Jesus himself says in John 14, 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Of all these points that we've listed, either our preaching is intentional, rational, even if it is expository, if our preaching, if our method is not Christ-exalting and Christ-centered, then our message is useless. And it will fail. All of it will fail apart from this one thing, if that our message is not centered around Christ. If we want to see the world turned upside down, I think this is a good method for us to follow, as the Holy Spirit has laid out for us, that we proclaim the gospel in a way that's intentional, that we proclaim it in a way that's rational and understandable, and we proclaim it in a way that's expository from the scriptures, not creating our own material, but just using what God has given us to proclaim to the world, and most of all, that our preaching, that our proclamation is Christ-centered and Christ-exalting. It's my contention that if we follow these things, commit ourselves to these things, and casting ourselves uh, upon the Lord, and relying on the Holy Spirit as we go, that the Lord will bring success. That's why these men were successful in their mission. Not because they had somehow cracked the code, that they had created a man-made method that just is supreme over everything else, but because that they were following the directing of the Holy Spirit. And so today, 
It's my hope that as believers, we will consider these things, that we will emulate these things, that we will leverage every opportunity and every gift that we have for the sake of the gospel of Jesus Christ so that more and more people might come to know the glorious Savior that we call our hope. Let's pray.